0: You're listening to The Thesis with Daniel Kari. It seems like everyone's got an opinion about how best to play the crypto opportunity, but who's right? Through deep discussions with sophisticated investors, we'll explore the limitless possibilities of these new markets.
1: I'm Daniel Kari. I'm a journalist, technology enthusiast, and previously a crypto fund manager. I've seen this industry inside and out, and if there's one thing I can tell you about the markets, it's that everyone has their reasons, everyone has their thesis. Jake Bruckman is founder and managing partner at CoinFund. Founded in 2015, CoinFund is partnered with the team at venture capital firm Venrock and focuses on funding early stage companies and actively participating in cryptocurrency networks. Previously, Jake was chief technology officer at Triton Research, a technical product manager at Amazon, and spent five years as a financial technologist at Highbridge Capital Management. Jake studied mathematics and computer science at NYU and the Honors Program at Rutgers University. Jake, thanks for joining us on The Thesis.
2: Hi, Daniel. Thank you so much for, uh, for having me on.
1: So let's jump right in. Can you explain your central theory for investing in the cryptocurrency ecosystem?
2: Well, I started, like many people in, in the space, in cryptocurrency. Namely, I, I learned about Bitcoin pretty, pretty early on. But very quickly, what I realized is that there's a lot more going on here than just currency. Currency is just one kind of disruptive implication of blockchain technology. What I like to think about we invest in at CoinFund is this idea of decentralized networks or crypto networks. Recently, I wrote a post on our blog, it was called the nine core value propositions of crypto networks, which go into why I think that these networks will start to provide services that we are used to traditional companies providing, but in a way that is highly disruptive. And so I would say my core thesis is around investing in these decentralization technologies.
1: I think that's interesting because a lot of folks just focus on the currency aspects. Can you talk a little bit more about your interest in decentralization specifically?
2: Yeah. Well, I think very quickly we see, again, that it's not just currency that could be implemented using blockchain assets, right? So currency, I think, paved the way for tokens, for different kinds of fungible assets. But very importantly, the same technology is also used for a very large class of, or what is poised to be a very large class of non-fungible assets as well. And those are called NFTs. And so I think that the ability to tokenize value in this way and make it programmable is really sort of the overarching, you know, value proposition of the technology. And what's really interesting is trying to think through like all the implications of that.
1: I know that you have been unique in that you your fund actually participates in a lot of networks. And you've talked a lot about generalized mining and yield farming. Can you sort of dive into that and and why that's interesting to CoinFund?
2: Well, as you noted, I'm a technologist. I, I sort of, you know, grew up in financial tech and pure tech at Amazon. So, so I, I'm generally a person who's pretty technical. You know, I, I studied math and computer science in school, as you noted. I worked in financial technology and pure technology at Amazon for most of my career. And so a, as we've been studying the space, what we notice is that crypto networks, they go through a life cycle, right? It starts off as, you know, a couple of folks come together, they kind of fund a Company as is usually done in tech, and then they draw up plans for this amazing decentralized network, raise some money, like put that network into production. but when it goes into production, it goes into this like early stage in its life cycle, meaning the network still needs to find product market fit it needs to find the supply side of users or um, supply side providers that are giving resources to the network, like for example if you're doing a decentralized network for cloud storage, then you need to find the actual disk space, right, to to store the information on. And then the, the network also has to find the demand side and needs to find people to to use it. Now in this early bootstrapping stage of these networks, as things have transpired, it, it's almost like the duty of backers, participants, and investors to try to ensure that this bootstrapping stage goes really well. And so one of the funds that early on has recognized the value of really understanding our network investments from a technological perspective and actually being active participants of those networks. So that has taken the form of doing staking. It's taken the form of adding liquidity, actually adding computational resources to networks. And then more recently, it's been taking the form of being an active participant in the public governance of these networks. Now, this has been developing now for a few years. And in the market, it's really come to a point where when I talk to founders, I often get a very pointed question, which is, how does your fund help the portfolio networks that it invests into? Do you guys do governance? Do you guys add liquidity? And so on and so forth. Right. So it's almost become this kind of active network participation post-investment has almost become you know, table stakes for being a crypto investor these days.
1: It's really interesting. It's almost like what Google would say about eating your own dog food. So you're investing, but you're also highly engaged. How differentiated is CoinFund in the space in that regard, do you think?
2: I would say that we probably have been doing this type of activity fairly early. I would say that we've been doing it you know, as a fund officially since about March of twenty eighteen. We've literally had to, you know, structure some entities and, and sort of our corporate structure to to be able to do this. And there's all kinds of, you know, operational things to to work through and wallets and and accounting and, and so on and so forth. So it's not a trivial thing to do as a fund. And we've been some of the earliest folks to do it. The other aspect is that, you know, as a kind of more technical set of investors, we've just gone like much deeper, I would say, into some of these opportunities that probably other folks have, I would guess. One thing that comes to mind, and we and we definitely wrote about this in detail on our blog is the Digix Dow dissolution vote that happened back in January of 2020. And you know, we can talk about that in detail. But in short, it was, you know, it was sort of like a financial bet on this outcome of Digix's governance system. And in order to make that bet in a kind of technical informed way. Like we did a lot of, you know, sourcing on-chain data about that governance system. We built internally some Monte Carlo simulations of that governance system to try to predict and, you know, f- feed as much information as we could to the model to see whether, you know, this vote would pass or fail to pass. And it was, it was actually fairly successful. It, it wasn't completely successful, but our model predicted that in digits in that dissolution vote, you know, it was a very high probability of reaching quorum The model couldn't quite predict whether, you know, the vote would pass. That outcome was just like so dependent on the whales in that system. And that's exactly what ended up happening, right? Like a whale at the very end came along and dissolved the down. But that was an example of how like deep we've gone into some of these opportunities.
1: Would you say that you go that deep on most of the projects? Or I'm trying to get an idea of, again, your thesis, like, if you're not just investing, are, do you plan on being actively involved in every one of your portfolio projects?
2: Yeah, I mean, to the extent that uh, you know we have time and, and, and bandwidth, um, we try to go fairly deep on on projects. I mean, we routinely will read the smart contract level uh, of some of these opportunities. We have had situations in the past where you know we'd really like something product wise, but then we went and. Kind of read the code and said, mm, despite the audit, we don't think that this is a kind of code quality that we would be, you know, super comfortable investing in as a fund, and we've held back. You know, and and when we talk, when we zoom out and, and talk about like base layer investments, I mean, we've gone as far as evaluating the consensus algorithms themselves, and certainly have seen like a ton of approaches over the years. So I don't want to say we do that for every project. Like it's it's definitely takes a bunch of manpower to do that, but we strive you know, for that ideal, I think.
1: This is a little fascinating, your approach, because a lot of, particularly in, in venture, a VC will invest in a portfolio company, and then it's like, well, we'll see what happens in 10 years. But you guys are actually spending a lot of time evaluating your investment even after the fact?
2: Y- yeah, I, I mean, look, the, the bottom line is the, what we want to do at CoinFund and what I really, really enjoy doing all day long is working with founders. And, you know, we consider ourselves sort of like full stack problem solvers. One great example this year and a team that I absolutely love and have been working with all year long is Rareable. And this is an example of you know, a situation where I have worked with, with that team on, on just about like every kind of problem that they have in the course of the project. And this starts at like the base layer, like which base layer sh- should we be looking at for scalability as we grow or what layer two should we be looking for for scalability? How do we you know, implement certain features in the smart contracts? How do we do a token? What should the token do? How does the governance system work? Right? These are all like kind of like low level you know, technical product issues. And then you go into the higher level technical product issues. It's like Rarible today is, I I think, the only NFT marketplace where you can follow your favorite creator. So just that idea, like while we're so used to follows in any kind of Web2 social media, in NFT marketplace world, this is like a disruptive feature almost, right? And I think Rarible's been doing a great job with that. And and I, I think they'll build a lot of engagement just on the fact of having followers. And of course, that's something that went through our you know, brain, brainstorming process about how do we engage users in the NFT space. And then, and then even more high level than that is like, what is the product? like What is the positioning of the product in the market? What, is, what should be the valuation of Rarible's token, which is one of the few decentralized networks that's actually generating revenue today, right? And so actually, as a matter of fact, the the marketplace started generating revenue officially yesterday, and in 24 hours, they did something like, I want to say 6.4 thousand of worth of commissions, and that annualizes to about 2.34 million of, of annual run rate, right? So all these features, all these metrics, all this positioning in the market, this is all something that, that we work with founders on in hopes of having them be, being highly competitive in the market.
1: Let's expand on this a little bit. So, number one, explain what non fungible tokens are and explain a little more deeply what rarible is.
2: Well, non fungible tokens are just kind of the tokenizations of unique assets. You know, when we think of currencies, we think of kind of a body of assets, each of which is the same. So, if I have an ether and you have an ether, Daniel, and I say, Daniel, if I give you my ether and you give me your ether, and as long as the number of ethers is the same, are you willing to trade with me? And of course, you might say, yeah, sure. Because the value is exactly the same. But if I have a Crypto Kitty and you have a Crypto Kitty, the value of those Crypto Kitties actually might not be the same, right? Like one Crypto Kitty might be very rare and valuable and another not, not as much. So non-fungible tokens well, are first and foremost, a standard on Ethereum that allows you to tokenize these kinds of unique assets. And those, that's called ERC-721 and more recently ERC-1155. Now, when we zoom out and we say, like, why is this interesting? It looks like people are just taking pictures and trading pictures back and forth of cats or something on blockchains. Like, why why is that interesting? (laughs) It
1: seems trivial, right?
2: It seems pretty (laughs) trivial. But actually, when you start to think about it, and actually, this is where Adam Levine from CoinDesk has actually influenced my thinking this quite a bit. I heard him say on one of these uh, calls that the reason that blockchains are disruptive technology is because they enable true ownership of digital goods and true ownership enables secondary markets of digital goods and i think that's exactly what's going on and highlighted by the non-fungible space here's what i mean by that non-fungibles are not just about they're not just about cat pictures they're not just about art they're not just about collectibles it's also about domains it's also about selling insurance policies it's also about selling stock photography, 3D models. And maybe in the future, it's also about selling the, the rights to your royalty bearing assets like music and movies, right? We can also see disruptive use cases like tokenizing your social media posts. Like that sounds kind of silly, but if you think about the fact that when you write a blog post, right, like you're the, you're the owner of the intellectual property of that blog post. And if, if ever anyone is, Making money, publishing that post. Well, it should be you that those royalties should be coming to you. But a t- but a tweet is really no different than that. It's just that the only difference is that you've created textual content that's shorter. It's two hundred and eighty characters. But in the same way that you own a blog post, you still own your tweet. And if you own your tweet, hey, maybe someone wants to buy it, or maybe someone wants to speculate on the on the future of it in, in some way, or maybe it's just a collector's item. Like if like my favorite example is. Elon Musk's uh, taking Tesla private. Like, what would you pay to own that tweet from Elon, right? Someone might pay. And so, you know, overall, I think the story kind of with NFTs, which have blown up in a big way in the last couple of weeks and with Rarible, is that this is a new asset class in blockchain. This asset class is bigger than just art. It probably encompasses all of digital content. And if you start to count up the number of digital objects out there, it gets really big. And and so this is when my investor hat comes on and and says, you know, hey, like, how do we invest in this space?
1: I'm curious a little bit about the timeline here, because NFTs are not something extraordinarily new. CryptoKitties, I think, was one of the first to just kind of captivate people, including myself. I want to ask you, why is it that recently NFTs have seen what you have described as growth? What is the catalyst for that?
2: Look, part of it is just that, just time, right? Like my general thesis is that when we create these blockchain-based open and permissionless technologies that introduce real economic efficiencies, then they'll just kind of slowly start getting adopted over time, start getting attention. And what is the efficiency that we're introducing here? Well, you know, it's one thing to say, got a bunch of enthusiasts creating like digital art and like selling it and that's pretty cool. And some people are actually selling them for fair amounts of money, right? Like POC, at POC's kind of crypto art work, right? Has sold for tens of thousands of dollars. But what I'm really excited about is the following. There's a whole market of professional digital creators out there, like illustrators, photographers, people who make 3D, people who design things. If you open up Behance.net, you'll see them, you'll see their work. And it's really good. But none of those people have any idea that they can take some of those works, put them on a blockchain, make them scarce, digitize the intellectual property rights of those things, and then monetize them for their own personal benefit and that middle market which has been completely untapped i think is like incredibly disruptive and what's starting to happen daniel to answer your question is that the ux of these nft platforms is starting to improve we're starting to be able to use our phones to go on them we're starting to be able to solve some of the barriers of you know getting a wallet and getting ether into it and, and stuff like that at least we're getting closer and some of these creators are realizing That there's a lot of money to be made here and digital art, collectible creation, uh, maybe a few other areas like virtual world land are like early examples of this tokenization taking place.
1: The big talk in 2020 has really been about decentralized finance or DeFi. Do you consider NFTs a part of DeFi?
2: I think I do. And the reason why is I, I think that, again, NFTs are a broad spectrum of digital assets. It's not just art. It's, it's digital. You know, I, I think of it as liquid IP, liquid intellectual property rights. And as such, they represent a financial asset class.
1: I'm kind of curious about the liquidity here. In cryptocurrency, in liquid cryptocurrency tokens, I mean, traders really want to have you know, a lot of volume. NFTs are really different in that you really are just relying on its scarcity and the willingness for someone else to come along and purchase an asset. Does does that feel accurate to you?
2: Well, I think the point you're making is that fungibles are more liquid than non-fungibles. Is that kind of correct? Yes. Yeah. And, and And I totally agree. And this is what we see in the market. Like, what is the way that someone can take a non-fungible and turn it into cash? In other words, how does one get liquidity in a non-fungible? And the predominant way of doing that today is taking it to a marketplace like Rarible, putting it up for sale or auction, and waiting for someone, a buyer, to come along and, and give you money for it. And of course, that is a, you know, at least at this stage of the game, while we don't have that many participants, although it's growing... At this stage of the game, that makes NFTs fairly liquid. What I'm really excited about are all the ways that blockchain technology, and in particular like DeFi protocols, are trying to make NFTs liquid again, right? And so we see things like Niftex working on fractionalized ownership of NFTs. And this is the idea that you could take an NFT, kind of wrap it in a smart contract, issue a fungible token that represents partial ownership into it. And then we have all the infrastructure already in place to make fungible tokens liquid, namely automated market makers and DEXs and centralized exchanges and, and everything like that. I think we can do even better than that. I think, I think in the end, what we'll see is that fractionalization is, is kind of onerous. Like when you're dealing with an asset class of you know, millions or billions or even trillions of objects it's kind of onerous to create liquidity pools for, for, for that size of, of asset class, right? But I do think that there will be mechanisms that maybe we didn't even like fully invent yet that will enable us to price these goods like a little bit more speculatively, maybe using prediction markets or oracles or something like that. And that will enable a certain kind of liquidity in, in NFTs as well. And the final thing to say is there are already products that are, considering NFTs as financial assets. So if you look at something like an FDefy, what these guys are doing is they're saying you can deposit an NFT as collateral and then someone can, can issue you a loan against that collateral. And that's also a form of liquidity for NFTs, right? So if that sort of approach takes off, we'll get more liquidity. Overall, across all of these approaches, this is an asset class that in various ways is becoming more liquid over time.
1: I want to shift a little bit over to more of the decentralized finance side. Over the last couple of months, this like sector of cryptocurrency has really kind of taken off. And it may have leveled off a little bit in, in the last couple of weeks. But what has been your sense of, of, of what's happened in 2020 with, with DeFi in particular?
2: Yeah, uh, obviously growth, right? So if you look at just the DEX space... In the DEX space we were doing about a year ago, we were doing something like a few million dollars of, uh, you know, of trading volume every day on, on decentralized exchanges. I mean, that has shifted dramatically, right? Like this, these days we're doing between 500 million and 1.5 billion, we've seen it that high recently, of daily volume on DEXs, mostly not on order book DEXs, mostly on automated market maker style DEXs like Uniswap and Balancer. And this represents tremendous growth. Now, what's crazy about that is people look at some of the valuations of some of these like AMM projects, and they're saying it's in the billion dollars, that's, that's crazy. But if you think about how there's like 100 to 130 billion dollars of trading volume every day, just in crypto in general, and how DEXs are like less than 1% of that, there potentially is a lot of room for them to grow. And how do they grow? They have to compete with centralized exchanges. What do they compete with centralized exchanges on? I think three things. One is the rates that they're giving to customers, the exchange rates. Are we giving you great pricing on your trading? Are we giving you low fees? And what we see is already some AMMs and indexes are, are outperforming centralized exchanges like Coinbase in certain markets. And especially when you take into account the fact that in centralized exchanges, you have fees that are proportional to volume you're doing. Sometimes on on AMMs, you're just kind of paying the Ethereum fee. But in any case, you you have better pricing. The other thing that we're competing with centralized exchanges on is interoperability. Like You can only trade Tezos against Bitcoin on a centralized exchange, to my knowledge, because most DEXs aren't interoperable across many exchanges. That's starting to change as well with projects like Band, projects like Serum, right? Who are bringing up cross platform kind of uh, DEX products. And I think the final thing that that DEXs will compete on with centralized exchanges is probably licensing and and kind of compliance. But I don't think that DeFi, and a lot of people say, like, how is DeFi compliant? I don't think that DeFi and regulation are mutually exclusive. I just think that DeFi is the technological rails for all these products. And everyone is still subject to. Regulation and compliance in their own jurisdiction. So the companies that will be building around this IT infrastructure, you know, will still be beholden to governments. And the last thing to say is, how else do we measure the growth of DeFi? Well, one interesting way is I think CoinGecko recently put up a DeFi sort of page, and what they show is the market cap of all the DeFi tokens out there. Now that has gone from about a billion in the beginning, worth of market cap, to about 16 billion. Now it's, you know. It's sort of like mid, mid to late September, we're sitting about twelve point seven billion after a bit of a sell-off. But that represents, you know, 10x order of magnitude growth in, in the market cap of DeFi recently.
1: One of the terms that kind of popped up this year, at least for me in DeFi is automated market making, or as you say, AMM. Is that like a new phenomenon? Or since you're so active in this, I'm sure you're a lot more familiar with how that all works. Could, could you take us through that a little bit, how, how AMM works?
2: Sure. I, I would not say that it is a new phenomenon. I think Bancor, which kind of had these like original seminal ideas that that led to this kind of DEX, I, I believe they, they wrote about them in 2016, right? Like Uniswap launched in 2017. We're just about at the end of 2020 here. So I would not call that new. Um, you know, if we're in blockchain for... 11 years, and DEXs have been around for four, I, you know, I would say that they've been around uh, for a while, right? Um, but what definitely has changed are people's probably like attitude toward this technology. And, and obviously the usage has spiked as we just described. So what sets AMMs kind of apart from, from other DEXs or other like order book exchanges? Well, AMMs enable liquidity like we've never really had before. If you wanted to market make an order book exchange before, this was something that hedge funds did, that big firms did. This is an activity that requires writing automated market making algorithms. It requires parsing high frequency order book data, making like quantitative decisions, building models. It's very complicated. And most importantly, it requires a lot of capital or it's not really worth your time. Now, what AMMs have done is they've said, We're going to take the market making side of things and we're going to simplify it to such a degree that a retail user can get the same kind of benefits as a professional hedge fund market maker back in, you know, the traditional kind of Wall Street context. And so what happens is a user can go to one of these AMMs, they'll find a market, let's say that market is Ether and DAI. And they'll deposit a little bit of Ether and a little bit of DAI. And in fact, the same amount of Ether and DAI if you're talking about Uniswap. And if you're talking about Balancer, you can actually deposit up to eight assets in all kinds of different proportions. And then what happens is that on the other side of that liquidity pool is the customer who wants to trade between Ether and DAI. And what they do is they deposit some Ether and they get some DAI back and they pay a commission fee. And that fee goes to the liquidity providers. And so there's this huge space that has exploded recently and probably helped to propel DeFi to where it is today of liquidity provision that like fairly unsophisticated people can can just do. And that has been game-changing both for the engagement of people in DeFi as well as the ability of a token to come to market. And the last thing to say is on that point, right, about a year ago, maybe a little bit more than that. If you thought about like, what would it take for me to get a token liquid? You would probably be thinking, you know, I need to get it listed with a centralized exchange. I might have to pay them for it. It might take me like six months to get all the documentation. And when it actually goes onto the exchange, I don't know how fast that market will form. I might have to pay market makers. It might never form. It might take six months to form. And that whole painful onerous process has been collapsed by AMMs into like a day. (laughs) And we've seen new tokens come onto the market and get like millions of dollars of liquidity, like almost overnight using this technology.
1: It seems like in the decentralized finance market for decentralized exchanges, Uniswap seems to dominate the market. Whereas with centralized exchanges there's a lot of different options. I know Uniswap has been around for a long time, but do you do you anticipate them to continue being the market leader or is there opportunity for upstarts to to come along in the decentralized exchange space?
2: You know, if you're following the decentralized exchange space, it is fervent with activity, right? It is, you know, someone puts out an AMM, someone puts out another AMM with, a, with an innovation. Uniswap has dual asset pools. Then Balancer came along and said, we have multi-asset pools. You can create pools with up to eight assets. And it's almost like, a, like, a, like an index fund or ETF, how you would think about it in traditional Wall Street terms. Other projects have come along and said, look, th- this is all great what you guys did, but you know, there's this property of AMMs that under certain circumstances makes liquidity providers underperform. That's called impermanent loss. But here are some innovations that will help to, to resolve the problem of impermanent loss. Then someone else came along and said, why do I have to deposit two assets at the same time? Like, why can't I deposit one asset at a time? They made that innovation. And so if you look at you know, the beauty of these, these open protocols is that they make it like fairly easy to iterate on the technology and really like move very fast with the speed of software toward efficiency, toward the right solutions. And there's some interesting implications of that, right? For example, as investors, like how do we think about what to invest in? Do we invest in all the possible iterations of AMMs and DEXs that come along? Do we invest in the most innovative one? Do we invest in the first one that has the best kind of longevity in the market, the best brand? Or or do we do something like completely different like, Investing in the aggregation layer on top, right, where in the future most of the retail volume might be coming from. And so in this way, you know, I I think the, the problem of investing in DeFi for crypto investors is largely a portfolio construction problem. And the innovation is just going to keep going.
1: You take a more active role than I think maybe some investors do in this space, obviously, based on what we, we talked about earlier. And I want to kind of circle back on that, sort of your active role. By being so involved, what is something that you've learned about the crypto ecosystem that maybe you didn't expect by being so, you know, diving so deeply into this?
2: <laughs> That's a good question. I'm always amazed by, on the one hand, of the simplicity of the technology that is being created and at the same time, the complexity of the same technology. And what I mean by that is we have the power with smart contracts to create entire legacy systems in like a few lines of code and relatively few lines of code, like a cryptocurrency, a whole currency can be created in essentially you know one page of code on Ethereum. Or an AMM, an entire exchange uh, system, can be created probably in a few hundreds or, or thousands lines of code, and and that's like really simple if you compare it to how these same kinds of products are implemented in the legacy world. How they have humans working on them, how they have paper processes, how they have technology, and how that technology interoperates with the corporate structure of whoever's providing it. We've achieved a high degree of simplicity. In a certain way. And at the same time, it's so complicated to maintain those systems and those systems are so complicated to get right. And they're so complicated to, you know, to check for security and privacy and things like that. And we're in early days, things often go wrong, right? And we have to learn from that and, and adjust and sort of move on.
1: And- you had mentioned Digix earlier. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Like what happened there? It seems like your involvement was was part of their decision to do what they did. I'm gonna, just going to let you kind of explain what happened there.
2: Digix was, a, was an early project. It was one of the first ICOs um, to raise money on Ethereum. I think that was in November 2016, if I'm not mistaken. They also were, you know, to their credit, one of the first implementations of a DAO. You know, we we all remember like the DAO that, that happened. But the Digix DAO, I think, was something like the second major kind of DAO project in the space. And over time, like the Digix project kind of got feedback from its community that they didn't want to keep the money from the ICO in the DAO. And they wanted the DAO to refund the money. And, and the, the project sort of said, well, we can't quite do that directly for you. However, if you go through the governance process, you know, if you, if you vote to dissolve the DAO, then what will happen is that the underlying resources or capital of the DAO, which was an ether, will go to token holders and the DAO will be dissolved and you will get a refund, essentially. You know, this situation kind of continued for a while and the DAO was not dissolved. I think there was a, an initial vote one quarter where like, it failed to pass. But what started to happen is that the value of the voting tokens in, in that DAO started to drop on the secondary markets relative to how much ether was like, locked in the DAO. so what I mean is, you could have had like $1 worth of voting token, but that dollar would enable you to like $1.50 worth of ether If only someone would dissolve this DAO. And so this created an interesting arbitrage opportunity where investors started thinking, hmm, well, if we go and buy up a bunch of tokens and sort of buy up a bunch of voting power in the system, and then we get the DAO dissolved, then we might be able to make a bet that we can make something like a 40 to 50% return in that spread of the arbitrage. And that's exactly what happened. A lot of folks kind of bet on the dissolution of the DAO. And the dissolution of the DAO happened, but interestingly, it didn't happen thanks to them. It happened thanks to a mega whale, which kind of came out of the woodwork all the way at the end of the vote and just single-handedly almost dissolved the DAO. He was a critical voter in that particular governance system.
1: So governance is really like this unique aspect when you're investing in projects in this ecosystem. How important is governance in your in your investment criteria? These days
2: I think it's very important if you read my core value propositions post like definitely the view of blockchain technology enabling governance of software is an important view and what we see is that there's a lot of reasons to be a decentralized protocol in the market these days there are you know product market fit reasons there regulatory reasons there are the way that some of these services fit into the ecosystem technically all these create reasons for a lot of folks to build out protocols. And recently, every protocol that's been hitting the market has been doing so together with some kind of form of public governance. And most of the time, that public governance involves a governance token. And so, what we see is just like a proliferation of governance. If you check out, there's a website called DeepDAO, it also gives you a sense of how many public decentralized autonomous organizations there are. And of course, Every such organization has a governance system. It gives you the idea of their market cap. And it's incredibly important, I think, for, for any protocol that is a public good to have a governance system that like, appropriately solves its problems. So what are these problems? These problems are like, how do we allocate capital for development? What parameters do we set for our lending protocol or or DeFi protocol? Like how do we institute our liquidity mining program or how do we work with customers? Like these are all questions of, of public and community governance of these things. And there's been so many governance tokens coming out that people are now building platforms to aggregate different governance systems into like a single dashboard to help you manage it. One of those projects called Boardroom, which we're very excited about.
1: So we're running out of time, but I do want to ask you one final question. How do you expect the cryptocurrency ecosystem to evolve in the next five years?
2: It really feels to me that you know we've spent a number of years kind of building protocols and started all the way at the lower levels of the stack, base layers and smart contract platforms and, and trying to solve like scalability and interoperability. and then in the middle of the stack, you know, we've, we've made tremendous progress in protocols, as we just discussed with DeFi and DEXs and the aggregation layer, different protocols for domain names, different networks for things like generalized computation and storage and video transcoding and you name it. And so it really feels to me like we're kind of reaching to the top there and really starting to reach out to the mainstream customer. And I think we're almost there. We're almost at this point where the user experience of some of these blockchain projects is going to get just good enough to start converting early adopters. I think the most probable categories for those are DeFi. And you know, you see a lot of people building, you know, Neo banks or DeFi banks. These things look like mobile apps where mainstream users can easily create an account, hook up their credit card, buy some crypto and start participating in DeFi in this very usable way. NFTs, of course, trading art, right, is another area where I feel like these early mainstream creators are going to start coming in more and more rapidly. And so what I think is going to happen over the next couple of years is this process of early mainstream adoption. Those thoughts are kind of reinforced by what's going on in traditional world in terms of recognizing the industry, recognizing the technology and working with the technology to get it integrated. And of course, I mean things like Facebook and Libra coming out this year. I mean CBDCs and different world governments working on digital versions of the dollar and the Chinese yen and and the ruble and so on and so forth. And of course, banks like JP Morgan also recognizing some of the efficiency characteristics of blockchains. So all those things together, I think, will lead finally to some early mainstream adoption over the next couple of
1: years. Jake, thank you for coming on. That's Jake Bruckman from CoinFund. I'm
0: Daniel Kari from Coindesk. This is The Thesis. You've been listening to The Thesis with Daniel Kari, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network and released on the new Coindesk Reports podcast feed. By subscribing to this one feed with your favorite podcast player, you'll get free access to six new shows from the editorial team at Coindesk each focused on a particular niche, perspective, or ongoing discussion within the world of cryptocurrency. This episode of The Thesis featured Daniel Kari, Jake Bruckman, with editing by Lilila Desma. Today's show was produced and announced by Adam B. Levine with music by Daniel Kari. Did you enjoy the show? We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com. And stay tuned for Borderless on Thursday. Bitcoin is the first truly borderless money, and its story is one of global disruption. Join Coindesk reporters Nick Day, Anna Bidakova and Danny Nelson as they discuss, dissect and put in perspective the three most impactful recent crypto stories from around the world.